Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Kate and Jeff had only been dating for a few months. Their full names were Catherine Sieber and Jeffrey Hampshire, and both were 19. She lived in the town of Saratoga, and Jeff lived in nearby Saratoga Springs. Jeff took Kate home to meet his parents. His mother, a schoolteacher, was quite impressed. Kate was smart, had scored 1,600 on her SATs, and had been in the junior ROTCs. Kate's 91-year-old step-great-grandmother, Ruth Witter, lived alone in Colony, New York. At a family gathering, she once told Kate that she only had one great-granddaughter, and it's not you. This infuriated Kate, and after a three-day binge of drinking and drugs in a motel, Kate and Jeff hatched a plan to rob her step-great-grandmother of her jewelry. They went to Walmart in Saratoga Springs and bought duct tape and a pellet gun to carry out their plan. Around 11.30 in the morning on February 12, 2000, Kate and Jeff went to a mobile gas station and asked to see a phone book. Kate looked up her address and spotted it, 32 Mordella Road. They drove to her great-grandmother's home. Kate and Ruth both had dark, deep-set eyes set in a narrow face. They didn't have much in common, but when Kate and her boyfriend Jeff knocked on the door, she put down the newspaper she was reading and opened it. She recognized Kate and went outside to see her new car, a little red Geo. Court records indicated that while they were outside, Jeff told Kate that he was going to steal from Ruth, but when they went inside the house, he said he wasn't. Then changed his mind and headed down the hallway and was attempting to sneak into her bedroom. Kate realized what he was doing, so she stood between Jeff and her great-grandmother so that she couldn't see. But Ruth saw what was happening and confronted him. Jeff restrained her and then strangled her with an electrical cord. Kate and Jeff wrapped her hands, feet, eyes, and mouth with duct tape. The couple threw great-grandma in the trunk and drove off. Nearly an hour's drive and 30 miles from Ruth's home, near the edge of Saratoga National Historic Park, they pulled over. And on the side of the road, they opened the trunk and threw her body down a small embankment partly covered in snow. She lay there with no coat on, her wrists and ankles tied, a sock in her mouth. Ruth died of asphyxiation from the electrical cord. Later, in court testimony, it was revealed that the snow had melted around her body, suggesting it had still been warm. Kate and Jeff then drove to nearby Stillwater, and behind a mobile gas station, they hid the gun. Two days after the murder, they visited a jewelry store to sell a ring they'd stolen from Ruth. The jeweler knew it was worth quite a bit, and thought he likely couldn't afford to buy it, so he offered to take it on consignment, but they refused. They wanted the cash. So he offered to buy it for 800 bucks, 
a great deal for him. They accepted it, and he wrote a check. That same day, Jeff's parents received a phone call from a hotel manager claiming that their son had trashed a hotel room the weekend before. Meanwhile, Kate paged a friend of hers, Dan McNeil. The Post Star reported that they met up, and she told him about Ruth's body and that she wanted to retrieve it and hide it in a better place. Dan took that information to the police, and six days after her murder, Kate picked up Dan to go move the body. What she didn't know was that police had put a recording device on Dan. As she was driving, Kate noticed the police were following her and screamed at Dan that she couldn't trust him. Police pulled her over, and when investigator Nathan York reached the driver's door, Kate was crying, and Nathan said, Katie, it's time to show me where Grandma is. Kate then took police to Ruth's body. The record newspaper reported that later, New York State Trooper Drew McDonald described the day as cold, very cold. It was just beginning to flurry, but by nightfall, there would be a foot of fresh snow covering the ground. Drew and several other police members were in a very rural area, a combination of both fields and wooded areas with a stream. An approximate 100 yards from the road, there was part of a sneaker protruding from the snow. It was Ruth's foot, frozen stiff. Jeff's Ford Bronco was impounded and police took inventory of items in the vehicle. Kate and Jeff gave conflicting accounts to police. Eventually, the lovers would break up and turn on each other. Three weeks after her murder, Jeff was arrested. He was taken to the Saratoga Springs Police Department, and as police were fingerprinting him, he voluntarily talked about the murder. He claimed that Kate asked him to tie up Ruth, but he refused and went outside to smoke a cigarette, and that Kate came out afterwards and told him she'd strangled her with a TV or stereo cord. Then they put her body in the car and Kate drove until she began speeding. Then he made her pull over so he could drive. He also told police where they'd hidden the gun. Both Kate and Jeff were charged with second-degree murder. The district attorney was still contemplating first-degree murder charges. In 11 months after the murder, in January 2001, defense lawyers tried to get the evidence police seized from Jeff's Fort Bronco thrown out. But the judge ruled that all the items seized from Kate would be admissible in court and all but one seized from Jeff. They didn't specify what that one item was, but the district attorney felt it was insignificant and would not impact their ability to prove their case. Prosecutors presented Kate with a report detailing forensic evidence that without a doubt put her at the scene of the murder. A scientist had determined that the fibers found on the duct tape on Ruth's mouth were an identical match to the gloves worn by both Kate and Jeff that day. On January 19, 2001, Kate pled guilty to killing Ruth and dumping her body. In her statement, she admitted to helping strangle her step-great-grandmother and transporting her body in her car. Her guilty plea came with a deal of a 20-year sentence and that she would testify against Jeff at his trial. By admitting her guilt, she'd avoided a 25-year-to-life sentence. Jeff pled innocent on the three charges he was facing, for intentionally murdering Ruth, for causing death by depraved indifference, and for murder while committing a felony. 
The judge told the jurors that the death penalty could not be applied in this case as he wasn't charged with first-degree murder. In late February 2001, jury selection for Jeff's trial got underway. The Post Star reported that his lawyer told prospective jurors that he didn't strangle Ruth, but rather he'd only helped move her body after she'd been strangled by Kate. She went on to say that we admit he did bad things, morally repugnant things, but it falls short of proving he murdered Ruth. The trial began in early March. Assistant District Attorney Richard Wendling's opening statement for the prosecution told the jurors that Kate and Jeff had partied together, ate together, and hid the body together. They are a team. They are both guilty. Witnesses for the prosecution took the stand, including a state trooper who testified that Jeff admitted that he'd been at Ruth's house the day she was murdered, but that he didn't kill her. They also heard from a cellmate of Jeff's that he had bragged about killing the old lady. He detailed how Jeff had told him that Kate and her great-grandmother had argued and that Grandma got duct tape choked and thrown in the trunk. The jeweler who had bought Ruth's ring testified, as well as a second jeweler that said Jeff had brought a valuable ring into a store and asked him to take a look at it. And when he did, he asked Jeff where he got it. And he answered that his girlfriend's grandmother had given it to him. Another inmate, who spent some time in a cell with Jeff, testified that he told him he choked her, stole her jewelry, and 650 bucks. Kate was also on the list of potential witnesses for the prosecution. When it was Jeff's lawyer's turn to speak, she taunted the prosecution, wondering out loud if they would have the courage to put Kate on the stand. The record newspaper reported that Jeff's lawyer, Cheryl Coleman, told the jury that Kate's father and stepmother didn't trust her and were forced to padlock their home and how she stole from classmates and bragged about setting her brother on fire and even burned her own stomach with a curling iron and then told the school psychologist that her dad had done it. Jeff's parents took the stand and his mother testified about the call they received about the trashed hotel room. She said that her and her husband had Kate and Jeff over to talk about it and they told them to go see the manager. But Kate sat on the sofa casually and said, It's a lie. I'm not paying anything. Kate did testify and told the jury how she went outside to turn her car around in the driveway so that the trunk was close to the garage and that when she went back inside the house, Jeff had already strangled Ruth and she was dead with an electrical cord wrapped around her neck and that they'd both wrapped duct tape around her face, hands and legs and put her in the trunk then dumped her in the snow. A total of 11 witnesses who testified backed up Kate's version of events. A forensic pathologist testified that Ruth had received a black eye during the struggle, and several of her ribs had been broken after her death. On March 13, after seven days of testimony, the prosecution and the defense rested their cases. The jury began their deliberations, and after a couple of hours, asked the court to reread the testimony of some of the witnesses, including Kate's. In a shocking and jaw-dropping twist, after two days, the jury found Jeff not guilty on all three charges. In the end, the jurors felt there wasn't enough evidence and too much reasonable doubt. I love District Attorney Jane Murphy's response. We're not in this business to manufacture evidence because the jury wants more evidence. My office presented all the evidence, 
and let the jury decide. Jeff's family were elated, but not so much for Ruth's. They felt he should have been found guilty, and they wanted a definitive answer on who actually killed her. But Jeff wasn't free to leave. He remained in jail on a charge of burglary unrelated to Ruth's case. He would spend time in prison for two separate burglary charges and was convicted of tampering with evidence from a hit-and-run that resulted in a death. Eventually, he was released in January 2014. With Jeff found not guilty, Kate changed her mind about her guilty plea and tried to withdraw it. But the court denied her request and she was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. Kate appealed her murder conviction and in 2004 the state appeals court refused to throw out her guilty plea and also declined to reduce her sentence. She then went to the U.S. Supreme Court and in 2005 they upheld the lower court's decision. Then in a twist no one saw coming, almost eight years later in 2009, it was revealed that the forensic evidence that played a significant part in Kate pleading guilty was now in question. It turns out that authorities were investigating scientist Gary Veter, who'd worked at the state police crime lab for over 30 years. He'd been cutting corners and ignoring proper protocols and procedures, and this raised serious questions about his competence and the quality of his work that spanned 15 years between 1993 and 2008 that affected more than 100 cases. During the investigation, police admitted he'd forged test results, then he committed suicide. Court records revealed that prior to her guilty plea, Kate had been presented with Gary's test results, which reported that fibers found on the duct tape recovered from Ruth's mouth were identical in macroscopic and microscopic appearance and consistent with having originated from the same material as a pair of black spade gloves Kate had worn that day. Based on the forensic results, her lawyer had recommended she plead guilty. John Chula, the public defender involved with Kate's guilty plea, stated that the jury didn't believe her at Jeff's trial due to the false evidence provided by Gary Veter. In March 2011, her lawyers asked the court to vacate her original guilty plea. Two months later, Kate was back in court at a hearing to determine if her case should be reopened. A month later, a judge tossed out her original guilty plea and she was granted a new trial. In May 2012, Kate was being tried a second time for killing her step-great-grandmother. This time, she pled guilty but to the reduced charges of first-degree manslaughter and third-degree burglary. The Saratogian reported that she entered what is known as the Alford Plea, which means that she pled guilty while acknowledging the evidence against her, but maintained her innocence. As part of the plea agreement, her sentence was capped at 17 years. For the first time, she apologized to Ruth's family. At her sentencing, Kate was crying and her hands were shaking as she told the court that she had been a victim of domestic violence at the hands of Jeff and had spent time in prison learning about and teaching classes on how to break the cycle of domestic violence. She also told them about her deep involvement with the church while incarcerated. The public defender commented that he thought she would go on to be a wonderful, productive member of society. She was sentenced to 14 and a half years and on July 16, 2012, Kate was released from prison after serving a little over 12 years. 
Kate had little close family left. Her father had died during her first trial and mother while she was waiting for her appeal. She had hoped to move to Washington to be with her brother. Perhaps that didn't happen as she ended up in New York. Being a convicted criminal made it difficult for her to find work, but she managed to land a job as an office manager. But her freedom didn't last long. In another unusual twist, only 11 months after being released, Kate was stabbed to death by her ex-boyfriend, Pedro Sanchez. The Daily News in New York reported that he had stabbed her repeatedly in the face and torso when he learned she was seeing someone else. He was charged with second-degree murder. Kate died on June 4, 2013. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Tara Grant. She was living a dream come true. Successful career, traveling the world, beautiful home with a husband and two young children. But their smiles and outward appearances hid the evil that lurked behind closed doors. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.